Good morning. In the church I serve, we call it God's morning. And uh, I know there are people watching online as well, wherever you are. I know it's 6 a.m. somewhere. Uh, we're glad you're all here. And of course, to all of you, as uh, Anne Henley has been saying, what a gift, what a gift. Um, and I'm going to repeat that, what a gift. Um, I'm also was reminded that this is one of alumni's favorite uh, doing this thing, the testimony of our professors, of our faculty members. And I'm so excited about this too, uh, because I get to introduce uh, two people who have been such a blessing for me. Uh, one of my instructors is keep it short because they're gonna talk about themselves anyway. Uh, but the first person is uh, Dr. Lapsley, uh, has been a blessing in my life because my first class in seminary was in Old Testament right here in this room. Imagine that, a guy named Genesis having Old Testament as his first class. And one of the things that she reminded me of is, whatever you do, however you do in your midterms, you will always be in and uh, <laughs> you will always be God's beloved child, a beloved child of God. And I actually put that as my name in my midterm, Genesis, the beloved child of God. <laughs> so Dr. Lapsley, thank you for reminding me of that. And uh, even if I messed up the introduction, I am a beloved child of God. Thank you, Genesis, and indeed you are a beloved child of God today and every day. Uh, it's wonderful to be here and see all of you and also folks who are watching online, delighted to have you as well. Um, thank you, Anne Henley, for asking me to tell a little bit of my story. Um, a lot of discussion these days uh, happens around trying to figure out how human animals are different from non-human animals. Um, lots of scientific and philosophical uh, conversations around that. And one of the ways they appear to be different is that um, human animals uh, narrate their lives. They tell the story of their lives. We, I mean, we don't actually know that Fox is not doing that, um, but you know, from what we can infer, Fox is not out there telling this is my story to the other foxes. Um, so uh, as part of our, that blessed rage for order uh, that drives us to narrate our lives, I'm gonna divide mine into three parts. Um, so part one. In my uh, 20s, I went to grad school in comparative literature. And I thought I was headed for a PhD in literature. And I, was, I knew I had some modest gifts for teaching. And uh, I thought it would be 19th century novels. Uh, that's what I would teach. And it sounded like a pretty fabulous life. Still sounds like a pretty fabulous life. Um, but at the same time, I was also coming to a young adult faith uh, I won't call it a mature faith, it wasn't quite that uh, yet, but it was a more vibrant faith than I had had in my childhood. Um, as part of my, that grad school experience in comparative literature, I went to Paris and studied uh, at the um, Ecole Normale Supérieure, which is a kind of undergrad slash graduate school in Paris. And um, there, my, these vocational goals that I had were slowly over the course of that year kind of burned away. Um, I had, I mean, I had a fabulous experience. It sounds like it was a terrible experience. I had a fabulous experience in that school and in Paris, but um, 
what I saw there was kind of, the school was very competitive um, internally. So there were people who would come out of their oral exams and they would throw themselves on the ground weeping and, and it was just a very intense kind of environment. And to me seemed not very life-giving. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm, not, I'm a little dense, but people weeping all over the, the, the grass is, does not appear to be life-giving. So, so right at that same time that I'm seeing that, um, I was attending the American Church in Paris that year. And there I found life. There was a clergy couple they weren't PTS alums, but they are nice people anyway. <laughs> and they were, had this ministry to um, students from all over the world in, that would come to that church kind of looking for a, a home in the middle of a city that wasn't their city. And that ministry was so vibrant. And those students, you know, they were being fed in all kinds of ways uh, there in that church. And so, and I was one of them. Uh, but there, but we were from everywhere, all seven continents. Oh, I'm not sure about Antarctica, but anyway, uh, uh, at least six continents. And that was, you know, here's that life-giving thing that is happening at the same time that I'm seeing this very intense academic life, which did not seem uh, as appealing. So I, that year in Paris was a long, slow Damascus road for me. Um, by the end, I really felt that God was calling me into a ministry. I, I was, you know, I looked at this clergy couple, and I, I want to be like them, right? Feeding people, um, metaphorically and literally. Uh, and I saw that the, that the ministry, the church, that's what it does. It feeds people who are hungry. Uh, so, um, part two. Uh, I, I, my dad taught here at PTS before me, uh, so I grew up here in Princeton, um, kind of on the campus. And I remember the day that I went to talk with him about my change of vocation. It was right here on Mercer Street um, in, in our backyard. He was tending his tomatoes, which he loved. And I walked out to him and I said, Dad, um, I, I think I want to go to seminary. I think I want to be a minister. And he said, oh, <laughs> Jack, there's, there's no money in it. <laughs> so I went anyway, of course. And um, the first half of seminary, I thought it would be a parish pastor. You know, again, I had my, the vision that I had um, from Paris. And then in my middler year, uh, two, I did two things. Uh, one was my church field education placement, in which I learned that I neither enjoyed nor was particularly good at leading worship. Yeah. So, I mean, I was okay. Everybody told me my diction was great. Um, but my friends were coming back from their field education experiences, and they were saying, oh, my gosh, I wish I could lead worship more. And I wish I could preach more. I wish they would let me preach. I wish mm, all the things. And I was like, oh, yeah. No. I would rather have my organs removed than do more of that. So 
you know, discernment comes in many forms. Um, but I did wonder, vocationally, I was having a little bit of a, I'm not sure it was a crisis. It was kind of like, a, oh, okay, I thought I came here to do this one thing, and then that's maybe not the thing. Is God telling me something else? Um, so that was one piece of Midler year. And then the other thing that happened that year was that I was a teaching assistant for Hebrew for Dennis Olson. Uh, and, yeah, yeah. And that was a fabulous experience, um, not only because uh, it was with Dennis Olson, which was number one reason it was fabulous, but also because I really loved it. I mean, you know, the joy was there. Um, and uh, I wouldn't say I was perfect at it, but I was like, oh, I see how things are coming together here in terms of my own uh, interests and, and the joy. Um, in my first year of seminary, I, like some of you, I suspect, had read in what was then TH-01, I think it was, TH-101, um, we read Calvin's Institutes. Yeah. And um, I, don't think, I don't think we're doing that as intensely as we did at that time, but now. But in any case, this part left, uh, leapt off the page to me. Um, for Calvin, there are four offices within the church pastors, elders, deacons, and doctors, which are teachers, right? Not real doctors, teachers. <laughs> um, and this realization that I could be a teacher called to a ministry within and for the church was just a giant aha. Aha, Calvin said it was okay, right? And, and then Frederick Beekner's, you know, famous uh, saying about vocation, uh, I think I learned that right around the same time. The place that God calls you to is the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. And so I felt that in that in that in teaching in teaching Hebrew. So I wasn't sure that the world uh, feels all that hungry for biblical Hebrew, but I was ready to give it a go, right? To to stir that hunger up um, as best I could. So part three, uh, the rest felt as natural as breathing. I went to Emory for graduate school. I came back here to teach. Um, I still feel that my calling has been within and for the church. Uh, I still feel that now as much as I did when I started. Even back then, my sense of call was broader than just narrowly for the church, though. Uh, I'm called to help prepare people, give my own little piece of that um, preparation uh, to be Christian leaders for the sake of the world. And that's what PTS is about. That's what our mission is. And uh, on good days, I sense that gladness and that hunger that Beekner talks about as, as being right there in the sweet spot. Um, and so, and those are on good days, and I feel blessed that most days are good days. So... That's a little bit of my story. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Lapsley, for that story. That's another reason to be grateful for Calvin, I guess. <laughs> and our next speaker, um, if you were in breakfast today, uh, Carlos, one of the students who shared this story, said he was a gem and a treasure. And I echo that. Uh, he was my professor in biblical theology. And I still remember that class where in um, Dr. Olson 
encourage us, use the Bible. You can use this God's holy word in, even in case studies. And that's been very helpful, especially when we have all these issues with sessions and all that. Uh, so without further ado, Dr. Dennis Olson. Thank you, Genesis. It's uh, great to be with you. Great to be with you online as well. Um, Professor Lapsley had three parts. I have four parts if I can get through them, but the quick, always one up, you know. That's all. <laughs> First part is what I would call uh, the, the paradox of the ways of God, the paradoxes of the ways of God. And uh, just thinking about my own formation, I, both my parents uh, were immigrants to this country from uh, Norway, from, and uh, they both grew up on farms, uh, small farms there in the beautiful valley surrounded by mountains. Uh, and they ended up coming uh, here, uh, my father in 1929, my mother in 1947 after World War II. Um, so Norwegian and English were spoken simultaneously and interwoven in, ki in kinds of ways. And there's research that suggests that having that kind of uh, bilingual experience sort of does things to your minds. Uh, and, uh, but I think one of the things that helps is the capacity to think through contradictions, seeming contradictions and tensions and be okay with that and uh, to uh, manage the, the way that's, that's through that. And so I've always been fascinated by uh, the Bible as a text of traditions that are often in some tension but are conveying truth through those tensions and, and managing those in, in particular contexts. And that's why in that course on uh, the theology and practice of ministry, I developed that course uh, with a New Testament colleague many years ago, precisely because it offers the opportunity to see the richness of the Bible uh, and the ways in which that richness can be a resource for thinking in concrete ways through sometimes quite gnarly cases uh, that we encounter in ministry in various kinds of ways. Um, so I, I grew up in a bilingual uh, household, um, and I... Um, also spent the first uh, elementary years of my life, first grade through sixth grade, in the last one-room country schoolhouse in Minnesota. Um, yeah. <laughs> and we had a great teacher uh, who could manage that really well. But what was interesting was, as, as the teacher was you know, working with grade six, uh, if you're in grade four, you're doing your homework uh, and, and assign. When you're done with that, you can sort of listen on what's going on. Then you can, you can go read a book. There was a kind of uh, creativity and a kind of um, openness to uh, being self-motivated to learn. And I love that kind of context. Um, and so um, listening to what's there, but also doing my own work, reading, whatever, uh, it, it was also a way to sort of, I think, help wire the brain in a certain way. In high school and the first two years in college, I was also on the debate team, competitive debate team, in which you had to go into uh, you know, in a tournament on the weekends, and you had a topic, and you had to be prepared to take both sides, and you would be assigned in one round, you would be on the affirmative uh, on a particular case. Uh, and the next round, you'd be on the negative, And you'd have to argue as passionately as, and as persuasively as you could on both sides of that. And you also develop a sense of you know, what truth is um, 
uh, has, has sides to it and different kinds of uh, aspects that if you uh, focus on one, uh, focus on the other, you maybe need to hold both of those together along the way. I was also a philosophy major as an undergraduate, um, and so that was also uh, important. I had a mentor who was an atheist, um, and so we had <laughs> very strong uh, arguments, and, um, but you know, in, a, in a very kind and uh, interesting way. So, uh, so, but it was a great proving ground for uh, the thinking and uh, reasoning together in that kind of way. Um, and so the notion of, of the need, importance of dialogue, of uh, sort of affirming the difference of traditions and the insights that come as we gather those and listen to other voices, uh, whether it's in committees or sessions or, um, or communities or seminaries or whatever. And that's part of the reason I just love teaching here at Princeton Seminary because of the diversity of the traditions of our students. Um, and uh, you take a text that we all share, the Bible, uh, and we open up a passage and then begin to explore it together. We see new things because others bring their insights from their traditions along the way. For 11 years, I was also part of a program called Seminarians Interacting as a faculty advisor here which brought together Jewish, Christian, and, and multiple different Christian traditions and Muslim traditions, uh, students, seminarians, and we would visit each other's campus, attend classes, worship services at different campuses, and then in the spring we would gather for a week-long intensive uh, conference and retreat together. But that, and what rich, rich kinds of dialogue that happened uh, along the way. So ironically, the program ended because of 9-11. The Office of the National Conference of what was Christians and Jews and then Community and Justice was uh, headquartered in New York uh, near that center and so they, have, they ended that in that kind of way. But that sort of dialogue and uh, paradox uh, has been important to me along the way. It's been important to me also personally um, my um, daughter uh, married a Jewish man, and um, we have sort of fully embraced each other's families. Now we share holidays and, um, with uh, his Jewish family, my son-in-law's Jewish family, and ours, and we've become very close, and that's been very important to us. Our daughter and her husband attend uh, uh, an interesting uh, religious community. It's an interfaith Jewish-Christian community. They have a Jewish rabbi and a Presbyterian pastor who are together. It's uh, quite a unique and sort of fully embrace and practice both religions. And so our grandchildren are being involved uh, in that. So our granddaughter also in DC, um, they have uh, free daycare. And there is a charter school, public charter school in DC that was a Hebrew immersion school that they got into, and she spent three years <laughs> uh, immersed in Hebrew, uh, so, which was delightful to my heart. <laughs> so <laughs> um, so that's, that's part of uh, the paradoxes of the ways of God, and so scripture uh, encapsulates that in many kinds of ways, and the Old Testament in, protect, in particular. I also tell, often tell students the Old Testament is faith for the long haul because it holds these tensions together and 
provides resources uh, for the long haul, from the praise in the Psalms to the laments of the Psalms, and holds that all together uh, in the same experience and the same book. A second, number two, would say feet on the ground, uh, it would be the phrase I would use, land, soil, food, farming. Uh, as I said, my parents were both immigrants. My father and mother both grew up on a small farms in Norway. Um, and my father came here uh, at the age of 19 to this country um, expecting to, to work a couple of years. He wanted to go back to school. Um, but he came in 1929, which was not a great year for, you know, advancing quickly into a high-paying uh, job and was just a farmhand and sort of just barely held on uh, for those early years and had to let that sort of whole, that whole dream go uh, and became simply a farmer. And so I grew up uh, on a farm and uh, worked uh, with my father. It was a it was a wonderful experience. It was a relatively small farm. It was well, I, we would probably call an organic farm. We just didn't, uh, but um, we uh, it was sustainable. We had pigs. We had cattle. Uh, my mother had a cow that she milked every morning. She had chickens. Uh, she had a big garden. Uh, she was. Uh, she was actually trained as, as a chef in Norway, so we had these great, I mean, talk about farm to table, it was right there. <laughs> um, and uh, so, I, and, I, and I loved working on the farm and uh, soil, I loved to garden still, and, um, and so ecology and creation, also part of the Old Testament, that's part of my interests and soul as well. Um, and then in terms of my call to, to ministry, number three, um, it, it's really in some ways two-tiered. In some ways, it was fairly conventional. We were very involved in the church. Um, uh, my mother was my third grade Sunday school teacher, and she was, she was tough. She was also not only a chef, but she was also a teacher back in Norway, and so, um, and so she was rigorous. She made us memorize in third grade Psalm 23, and I've held that my whole life uh, to this point. Uh, as a sort of wonderful memory of that. Um, so church was central to us, and I began to develop a, a real interest in the church. I joy in that as a young person. Um, I remember on the farm, uh, I would uh, give the, uh, do, do the chores after school every day and feed uh, cattle and hogs and corn or whatever, and then I would get up in the feed trough, and then I would start to preach to them. So, <laughs> so you know, if you, bring, if you give people something to eat, they'll come, and then you can preach to them. So, <laughs> so I mean, it was, it was, I know I didn't think of anything. It was just fun to do, but there was something that was, was brewing there uh, along the way. I was part of a great youth group uh, in high school and a great youth pastor who was a mentor. Uh, and so I began to feel a call to ministry at that point. Uh, and then went to seminary and discovered the Old Testament. In college, I had a great Old Testament professor who opened me up to the Old Testament and all of its riches, particularly excited what, by the book of Ecclesiastes, vanity of vanities, all of vanities, you know, and, and but all this race for uh, great fame or great riches. That's not where happiness is, joy, simply in uh, eating, drinking, uh, and enjoying one's loved ones and friends. 
um, that simple joy. That seemed to speak to me at that time. And also the other book was The Song of Songs, The Song of Solomon. And there was erotic love poetry in the Bible. I, I never knew that. And <laughs> damn, that's good. So, so, <laughs> so that, that, that attracted me as well. Um, <laughs> So I went on to seminary at Luther Seminary in St. Paul. I'm Lutheran in tradition background um, and developed further my interest in Old Testament. Terry Fretheim was an important uh, uh, Old Testament theologian for me, uh, shaping uh, concern about the Bible, but its theological use for the sake of the church. I then went on to Yale University. Uh, Bart Childs was there and who had a similar uh, concern about uh, the Bible and the theological use in the life of the church. And so that felt very compatible to me along the way. But I thought, and so I began to develop a sense of call to, to teach in a seminary, if that were ever possible. Um, but I thought it might be good to go into ministry for a while and actually be a pastor, if I'm going to teach pastors. And so I did that for four years, right after finishing my dissertation. Uh, I went to my call interview, um, and I was, you know, really excited by the Old Testament, and I expressed that to my call committee and went on and on how great the Old Testament is and so <laughs> forth. And then one of the people on the call committee sort of leaned over. His name was Larry. I remember he squinted his, his eyes. He had glasses on. He squinted his eyes. He leaned over. He said, would you ever preach about Jesus? <laughs> <laughs> And I still remember thinking, I should say, who? <laughs> and just see how they would react. <laughs> but I restrained myself. But as it turned out, Larry would have loved that if I had said that so, along the way. So, so, so that was my call to ministry. Um, about two years into that ministry, uh, uh, we were visiting my parents. And uh, my mother and father sat down with me and said, we want to tell you the rest of your call story. I said, what? <laughs> and uh, so my father um, was raised uh, in that small farm in Norway. He went to a one-room country schoolhouse. He had a teacher who felt himself a call to be a missionary. Um, but he never could quite sort of pull the trigger on that. Um, he, he, loved, he loved Norway, and, uh, but he was very bright, gifted, uh, and when my father appeared um, early on, he knew this, uh, this uh, young man was, was gifted. Uh, my father was already reading before he got to school, so he, uh, his own father was, a, was an avid reader, and so, um, so this teacher, uh, really mentored him and allowed him to, teach, uh, to read his own library of books. Um, my father would go to church every Sunday, because, uh, in part because they had a library of books that he would bring a, a sack of books uh, back to church and then take another one uh, every week. And he was an avid reader, loved learning uh, along the way. Um, so this teacher, though, uh, more and more realized he couldn't take that call on, but he thought perhaps this person could, and my father, and my father began to also take that call and, and, and developed within himself as well. And so when he came here in, in 1929, at the age of 19, having borrowed $200 from his father for the uh, ticket on the ship, that's all he had, um, and he came here and his hope was to 
have a couple of years, earn some money. America seemed to be a land of opportunity. There was not much going on in Norway at the time. And, um, but it never happened for him because the Great Depression and uh, he, that the dream never happened. Um, after World War II, my father went back uh, to Norway. Uh, Norway had been occupied by the Nazis. Um, and one of his brothers uh, on, on the farm where he grew up had helped an allied pilot who had parachuted out of a plane that had been shot down uh, and smuggled him uh, out uh, back to uh, England. And uh, someone told the local Nazi officials. And so uh, his brother was taken to a concentration camp up in Oslo. Um, and his brother was on a line to go on a ship and on a train to a place called Auschwitz. Um, and and the, the commander of the camp saw him in the line and said, take him out. I need him to take care of my horses. Um, so that saved his life probably. Um, no, no, this was, this was the brother of my father, my <laughs> uncle. Yeah, yeah. And, and so, um, but it was, it was totally traumatizing to my father's brother. Um, and so after the war, he just went into a, came home and went into, into a fetal position, uh, suffered what probably would be PTSD. And so my father went over for the first time since 1920, uh, so uh, in 1946 or seven to the war and uh, spent six months with his brother and sort of nursed him back to life. Um, yeah. And so he, he really did come back to life in that kind of way. He then met my mother, um, and she had been a teacher. She had also been trained as a chef. She had just been uh, admitted to the top culinary institute in Oslo, in the capital of Norway. She was so excited, and she met my father. They fell in love in July, you know, and they met in July. By, by October 1st, they had become engaged. My father's ticket for his boat was October, so he had to leave. Um, but they promised one another to uh, send love letters to one another every week uh, for a year, because my mother said, I need a year to get everything together, and then I'll come over. Um, and uh, my mother just revealed that uh, just like a year before she died, which wasn't, it was only a couple of years ago. She lived in 98. But um, I said, oh, mom, do you have those letters? And she said, no, we don't. So uh, unfortunately, she said, when the th we had my two other brothers, so the three boys, when the, we had begun to, you know, uh, we were born and, and growing up, my father was afraid the, the letters might fall into the ha our hands and we might be, <laughs> might be sullied or something by, by the letters. And so he said to my mother, um, I, I think we should, you know, this box of, of these love letters, I think we should, we should get rid of them. <laughs> My mother said, no, but okay, all right, okay, you know. Uh, and, and, and so, um, uh, and my mother said she resolved it for herself because she said um, that, uh, that, you know, they knew they loved each other and now they had these three boys and uh, one family and that was enough. So let's let go of that. So they took it out in the backyard in a barrel and they, uh, they dumped them into the barrel and they set fire to them. 
sort of a ritual, right? But before they did that, they read through every letter. They sat down in a room and read through every letter. So anyway, so what, the, what does this have to do with my vocation? <laughs> well, the point, the point my parents wanted to say was, look, your, your call was two generations ago to, to my generation and now to you. But our parents always said to us, you only do what you want to do in terms of the three boys, what vocation we wanted to take. They never ever mentioned that you should be a kind of pastor or whatever. Just do what you want to do. They wanted to have the call genuinely come from, if this was going to happen, they, they, they had agreed to themselves, it would be nice if this call would go to one of these sons. But they never mentioned it to any of us uh, in that way and wanted to do that. So that's, that's the, the second tier, the other, to the rest of the story along the way. And then I just one fourth word, just because I said there were four parts. But um, so, is is hospitality for for my parents? They were uh, known for their hospitality, and that was at the core of who they were. And they welcomed uh, what what the community might think the least of these, those who were alone, uh, because my father himself had experienced that loneliness as a 19, 20 year old. Um, Christmas Eves were really important in his Scandinavian experience. And he had to spend Christmas Eve alone. Um, and, one, and one year he just went into town, bought himself a tie, had it put into a gift package, took it home, opened it up, and that was his celebration. So he never wanted that to happen, if he could, for, for other people. And so they always welcomed Strangers, strange people into our home. <laughs> uh, but those were the people they loved to have. And my mother, when my father said to my mother, you can do anything you want when we move uh, back. Um, you know, if you want to work outside the home, that's fine. You want to work on the farm, that's fine. You want to stay in the house, whatever you want to do. Just one thing I ask, and that is every Christmas Eve, we invite people who are alone to join us. And so we did, um, yeah. So, and I, when I think of my classroom, I think about hospitality and welcoming strangers uh, and finding home there in that way. So that's, that's my story, thank you. Thank you.